Welcome to this APTA podcast. Hi, I'm Janine Coleman, a specialist in the practice department at the American Physical Therapy Association. Today, I'm with some special people who are here to talk about a new clinical practice guideline from APTA, Physical Therapist Management of Glenohumeral Joint Osteoarthritis. This clinical practice guideline, or CPG for short, is now available on the PTJ website. That's our Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Journal. We'll put a link to it in the notes for this podcast episode so you can check it out. Just a note of clarification before we get started. Throughout this podcast, you'll hear us refer to osteoarthritis as OA, and you might hear us use the term GH for glenohumeral and TSA for total shoulder arthroplasty. First, let's meet the lead authors, Dr. Lori Michener and Dr. Jill Heitzman. Dr. Michener is a professor and director at the Clinical Biomechanics and Orthopedic Outcomes Research Laboratory at the University of Southern California. And Dr. Heitzman is the director of the physical therapy program and associate professor at Maryville University in St. Louis, Missouri. We also wanted to acknowledge and thank the co-authors for this guideline, Dr. Laurel Abrizis, Dr. Salvador Bondock, Dr. Kristen Bone, Dr. Philip Troy Henning, Dr. Heidi Kosakowski, Dr. Brian Legan, Dr. Ann Licata, and Dr. Amy Seitz. So my first question is, how did this guideline get started? Lori, can you kick us off? In 2020, the AAOS, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, put out a clinical practice guideline for the management of glenohumeral osteoarthritis. In this guideline, they made consensus recommendations that physical therapy should be used for non-operative, preoperative, and postoperative management of patients with glenohumeral osteoarthritis and after a shoulder arthroplasty. However, PT, physical therapy, was really used as a generic term and not really explicit about what components would be appropriate, what should be done. Hence, the APTA really wanted to take the lead and create a clinical practice guideline that was really helping physical therapists better deliver care for these patient populations. And reached out to the AOPT and the Academy for Geriatrics and asking for assistance in this. Jill, is there anything you'd like to add? And to follow up on that, um, as APTA started reaching out to um, the APTA geriatrics, it really became a natural fit. We have the certified exercise expert for aging adult courses that we teach that has to do with exercise for various pathologies. And there was a lot of information out there for the hip and the knee and other pathologies and fall risk, but there was very limited information out there on what the PT's role was with shoulder OA. So clinicians were asking lots and lots of questions about what do we do for the shoulder? Therefore, when APTA Geriatrics got asked to be part of the CPG, they were really happy to join in and very enthusiastic to join the Orthopedic Academy in developing this resource. Great. So after finding and appraising the evidence, what did you learn? Lori, let's start with you again. So the guideline is in the link, as Jeannie has said, but let me uh, go over just very briefly what the guideline recommendations are. So the recommendations for strong to moderate evidence included diagnostic information and specifically that history, physical exam, and radiographs can be helpful in um, diagnosing glenohumeral osteoarthritis. A critical shoulder angle on radiographs and age particularly are the specific ones predictive of the diagnosis. 
Advanced imaging using MRI is beneficial in this differential diagnosis. After radiographic, that's unclear, and it may be helpful to confirm the diagnosis, but it's less useful to rule out or consider that the diagnosis is not probable. Postoperative care, implementing the use of sling and progressive exercises for range motion and strengthening exercises are helpful to improve patient-reported outcomes and range motion in patients with glenohumeral osteoarthritis who've undergone total shoulder arthroplasty. I should mention here, we particularly looked at total shoulder arthroplasty on the rise over the past five to 10 years is a reverse total shoulder. And we excluded that from the review. So these results pertain specifically to total shoulder and not reverse. Going on with the post-operative care, they can implement flexibility exercises to improve range of motion. And then the timing of the introduction of shoulder range of motion by physical therapists may be delayed four weeks without negatively impacting patient-reported outcomes in patients who've undergone total shoulder arthroplasty. Then based on consensus, we had a couple questions or PICO questions that we asked about preoperative, non-operative, and post-operative care that revealed no high level one or two evidence. So they were put in the category of best practice recommendations based on our expert consensus of our panel. Preoperative prior to total shoulder recommended that patients can benefit with respect to and improving post-operative outcomes after total shoulder. Non-operative, again, may benefit, and one treatment wasn't recommended over another. There was no evidence to suggest one treatment over another. And then post-operative also may have benefit from physical therapy. Great, thanks. Today, we're also joined by three APTA members who wanted to share their clinical thoughts and some questions about this new CPG. Doug, Rob, and Tim, can you please introduce yourselves? Good morning, good early afternoon to everyone. My name is Doug Conroy. I'm a board member of the um, Hand and Upper Extremity Academy, uh, currently serving as treasurer. I am an orthopedic physical therapist in private practice uh, in Southwest suburban Chicago. And I hold a one third appointment uh, at Northwestern as an assistant professor. Good morning, good afternoon to everybody. I'm Rob Mansky. I work in the Department of Physical Therapy at Wichita State University. I'm a professor here. Uh, I'm a member of uh, both academies, actually, the Orthopedic and the Sports Academy. Uh, and I work primarily with shoulder and knee patients, but I see plenty of shoulder patients that have a variety of conditions and pathologies, including osteoarthritis. Hello, everyone, and thank you for having me. My name is Tim Wynn. I am part of the Orthopedic and Geriatric Academy. I have my geriatric uh, specialty certification. I have a full-time clinical role in an outpatient facility, um, primarily working with older adults. We mainly see generalized low back pain, post-surgical knee, and uh, conservative shoulder patients. Great, thanks. Tim, do you wanna start us off with a question for the authors? Yeah, I'd love to. So within the demographic of older adults, I know that women kind of there's more women out there and men than the, in the older adult cohort. But what are some other contributing factors, including history of shoulder trauma, maybe occupations that required heavy lifting, and sports that are using upper extremities overhead that may be contributing to that glenohumeral OA? Yeah, my, I noticed that too. And uh, I have maybe a, a follow-up question that kind of goes along that same lines. 
And I'm really interested in the relationship of that you report of bone health and quality of bone health. So osteopenia, osteoporosis, history of fracture, menopause, things like that. Uh, and then additionally, diabetes or vascular conditions, such as blood flow or swelling, um, how it may impede uh, recovery or help recovery. And each of those effects on outcomes, recovery, and or function. Jill, would you like to take that one? Well, I think those are some good questions um, regarding the burden of the disease that was presented in our CPG. The articles that were discussed really did discuss more the prevalence, but did not go into the real discussion of why these prevalence do exist. And we do know that the traumatic type injuries do lead to some of the damage to the uh, glenohumeral joint. However, if we go to the textbooks and the research on physiological aging, we find that with aging, the tissues begin to retract and thereby pulling the humerus superior into the fossa. And with females, as they go through menopause, they have hormonal changes that lead to the osteoporosis risk. This osteoporosis risk is most commonly seen in bone changes related to the vertebral bodies, leading to increased thoracic kyphosis. So now with the changes in the thoracic curvature, the superior movement of the humerus, our scapular humeral kinematics are really impacted, resulting in more greater impingement of that humeral head in the fossa especially during these reaching activities that we have to do with reaching above into a kitchen cabinet, into the bathroom while dressing, doing these everyday activities. This can lead to more of the breakdown in that joint and, and lead to OA. Um, with the increased female population, because in the past men's lifespans did not last as long as females, we were naturally seeing this more highly prevalent condition in females. However, recently, some of the things related to aging sports, um, the longer lifespan in men, this trend may be changing. We don't have real good data to see how this is changing with this more active aging population. And hopefully we will continue, we will continue to see more data coming out that will get, shed greater light on what the true prevalence is. Is it related to sports? Is it related to repetitive work injury? more so than just related to the natural physiological agings that occur within those joints. Great. And uh, Jill, just a follow-up question. You mentioned trauma. Why are there so many falls following total shoulder arthroplasty? I noticed a study cited by Tridharan et al. Up to 10% of their 198 patients had falls. Is this due to the actual surgical procedure or maybe due to pre-existing factors? Additionally, if pre-existing factors exist, what should we watch out for to help prevent falls and injury? The article that you were referencing really didn't tell us why there were so many increased falls following total shoulders. They just, again, reported some of the prevalence of what occurred. However, if we go back and look at pre-existing conditions, those could play a part in it. But more so, if we look at gait analysis, and we know from our gait analysis, arm swing impacts trunk rotation, and the combination of arm swing and trunk rotation, it impacts how we walk and our balance with walking. Thereby, after surgery, if you have this immobilization, possibly with a sling or with the limited range of motion and strength, there could be a reduction in this arm swing and trunk rotation that leads to balance deficits that could result in falls during gait. I think the combination of both the pre-existing conditions that we need to be aware of that we already know can predispose someone 
to fall, such as diabetes with the polyneuropathy or other conditions that could be available, and this arm immobilization, like I said, with a sling or with the decreased range of motion and strength, both of those need to be considered when we're looking at this population post-surgery. And Tim, I think you had another question, this one about diagnosis. Yes, I did. Uh, I'm currently practicing in Arkansas and about to move to Colorado, but the CPG discusses measures to diagnose glenohumeral osteoarthritis, which require imaging in most instances. Not all states allow PTs to order imaging. What are the author's thoughts and feelings on the ability of PTs to order and interpret imaging for conditions such as glenohumeral osteoarthritis or any other shoulder pathology? Well, I'll take this one too, and then hopefully Lori will have a few coming up. We do know that nine states in the District of Columbia have expressly permitted PTs to order x-rays for patients. A 10th state just passed a bill that will allow that as well to order x-rays and MRIs. Um, APTA has identified patient access and care as public priority and all of the state advocacy resources regarding x-rays um, and diagnostic imaging will be put on this podcast site. But we do need to also remember that um, an entry-level requirement now is for PTs to be able to understand how to read and interpret x-rays. And so even if we're not taking, having the actual ability to order the x-ray, we should be able to look at the radiologist report. We should be able to look at some of the films and be able to help us have a better idea of what we want to do with our physical therapy intervention and whether it's something we can even do versus having it be referred. Thanks. And then Rob, you had some questions about the PT management of glottohumeral OA. Yes. Thank you, Janine. Uh, I was really wondering if you guys could tell us what, what functional measures can be recommended or maybe would be best for this population, either preoperatively or when you're postoperatively testing people. Thanks, Rob, for that question. There was no functional measures identified in any of the clinical trials or any of the studies that we reviewed. This is likely related to the limited functional testing for older patients. And so I think patients with OA and full thickness rotator cuff tears that fall into this genre of these patients, most of the performance tests that we have are really for athletes, shot put tests, single arm. Not that patients who are returning from OA couldn't potentially use those tests, depending on what they want to return to. However, there more recently have been functional tests published that might be appropriate for this population. We'll put the link to these in the show notes. The one is the TFAST, and that is a time functional arm shoulder test which is a combination of lifting and repetitive activity that's a lower level than these typically sports tests. And then a new one that just came out as well, um, the shoulder performance activity test known as the SPAT. And that is looking at, again, lower level activities. I hesitate in saying lower level activities, but what I mean is it's non, not geared towards athletic population. And um, both of those will be in the show notes. But also based on some deficits, they're recommended such as resistant strength testing and if um, and appropriately trying to use a handheld dynamometer and range motion of external, internal, and elevation range motions recommended with respect to relevant deficits that'll relate to functional performance. Great. Thanks, Lori. Uh, clinically, the other question I have clinically, um, probably a lot of you have also noticed this. 
um, patients with osteoarthritis having a, a large difficulty um, during eccentric movements or activities. Um, so people have severe arthritis on great radiographs. So like you mentioned, Lori, just a moment ago, they're really inability to hold a position against gravity, maybe because of pain or weakness. You get the uh, cogwheel-like sensations when you're doing manual muscle testing or resistance testing for them, crepitus, and then a lot of times pain, not always pain, but a lot of times they have discomfort with that. Would there be any indication to emphasize eccentric strength as a preoperative strength goal or risk for postoperative rehab due to potential benefits to assist with you know, disorganization of collagen framework is described in the etiology section of this CPG. Well, as we have stated, there's not a lot of research that we actually could find on many of these interventions that we would consider for our patients. And we can look at what our knowledge is related to other joints with other structures. And strengthening is an important part to achieve a movement around joints and stability around joint, whether it be eccentric or concentric. And we're looking at the shoulder, we also need to consider the strengthening to improve that posture to ensure the proper scapulohumeral kinematics. So strengthening the joints, the, the larger muscles around the hip and knee have been shown to be beneficial to reduce the risk for progression of OA. There's no reason to think that that would not also occur in the shoulder. And I think it is to the um, benefit of the patient and the therapist's uh, professional skills and knowledge to look at what is happening preoperatively, eccentrically, concentrically, regards to their posture, regards to the scapular humoral rhythm, and strengthen accordingly and use those as measures postoperatively. Thank you. And Doug, you had some questions about post-surgery and no surgery. Yes, regarding the recommendation for sling immobilization after total shoulder arthroplasty, would this also include uh, the addition of an abduction pillow and neutral humeral rotation? Hi, Lori here, I can take that. Um, there's one uh, high quality small study uh, that compared neutral versus internal rotation uh, sling position and internal rotation sling position. I feel like these are always very confusing in the shoulder is internal rotation meaning hand on the stomach essentially. And then a neutral position was with their arm, not quite the whole way at zero that we might think, but rather that there is an abduction pillow as you suggested. And then they saw that people who use this neutral sling versus hand on their stomach in this internal rotated position had less night pain at two weeks and greater external rotation range of motion at a year and slightly better outcome, patient reported outcome scores. Did that make sense? Yes, thank you. Uh, one other additional question. Some patients just aren't appropriate for a total shoulder replacement or they just may not want the surgery. What different physical therapy intervention options were assessed in the literature? Oh, thank you. Great question. Uh, there's really no high or moderate quality evidence. That was our threshold for specifics of what type of program should they, what specific intervention should they do. But in a prospective cohort study that was uh, about 129 patients, there was a multimodal treatment that they suggested, um, and it's a combination of physical therapy directed intervention that was range motion and strengthening exercises. And then this also included non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, as well as glenohumeral joint injections. 
and education. So recommending then, based on that, we would say a combination of looking at their deficits with range of motion and strengthening exercises, and then these other aspects as well, including education, and they had demonstrated improvement in pain, function, and health-related quality of life at short and long-term. But the key is a lot more research is needed in this area to really determine what's the best course of action for these patients and how long do they need intervention. Thank you. Yeah, so I love to hear how physical therapists can improve their value for conservative approaches and care. Going back to a conversation between Jill and Rob, you guys were mentioning um, extrapolating maybe information from other studies, such as the hip and knee. We've seen um, big improvements for non-operative PT for those conditions um, to improve range of motion, function, and pain. Would we expect the same with shoulder glenohumeral osteoarthritis? Well, thanks, Tim. Um, as Laurie said, we don't have a whole lot of research on specific exercises. But we do need to look at that whole person. You know, again, what is their posture like? What is happening that may be impacting that scapular humeral um, kinematics? What do they need to do in their daily tasks at home and work? We need to address those movement deficits because that can go a long way to minimize the substitutions, which then would put more stress on these joints. And we want to be able to have them move in a more efficient way that is structurally sound for the kinematics to be more effective. So we want to look at that movement analysis. How do they initiate the movement? How do they execute the movement? And how do they terminate the movement? When we're looking at that, we can see what in the kinematic chain is missing. Is it thoracic extension? Is it lateral flexion of the thorax? Is it um, something with external rotation of the humerus as they're moving into abduction? But only when we address those deficits and that are in the movement chain by looking at movement analysis and looking at their posture, can we even begin to make any kind of exercises to make change in the overall outcomes on these patients who either cannot or do not want to undergo surgery? But we do need more research out there related to this. How about one last question for the lead authors of this CPG? All right. Uh, this is probably for either Lori or Jill. So the literature review used for the CPG Cut off around 2020, 2021, so a couple years ago. Uh, what I'd like to know is, are there any new or upcoming research studies coming out for, for shoulder geeks like us to get excited about? Jill, do you want to take that? Well, you already started on this a little bit, Laurie, when you showed some of the uh, research that came out in 22 and 23 regarding some of the functional outcome measures. So that's pretty exciting to see people looking at how can we actually measure function in this population versus in our high-level athletic population? We did have a few other studies in 21 that were included into the research, but doing a quick review of what is out there right now, the majority of the studies have still focused on medication usage, the progression of the pathology, the surgical management um, in a recent review that I used the artificial intelligence to try to help me find some uh, research out there. I only found one study that actually looked at PT, and it was a randomized controlled trial of physical therapist-led exercise programs for individuals with shoulder OA, and it was a study protocol. So it was just a protocol of, of what happened instead of coming up with 
a new program or coming up with the specific exercises. And this was just published in 21. So as far as I could find there, we really haven't gone much further than what we found because most of the research is still focusing on the medication, surgical management and progression of the pathology itself. And we need more people to step up and use some of these functional outcome measures that Laurie found and try to come up with what is the best interventions and exercises that could be used and should be used for this population. Great, thanks. So Rob, as an orthopedic PT, what's your biggest takeaway from this CPG and what, if anything, will you do differently from now on? Thanks, Janine. That's a great question. And to be honest, I had several, I think, key takeaways. Um, to begin with, I was really interested and kind of excited to learn how much the use of uh, when you're looking at early versus late initiation of physical therapy parallel a lot of kind of what we see with, I think, rotator cuff repairs and more, I guess, general orthopedic PT. And I'm not really sure that's going to totally change my treatment approach, but it was good to see that it kind of parallels that, uh, which seems kind of nice. I also found it interesting and kind of take comfort knowing that I'm already following what some of the findings said we should do as we treat our patients with shoulder osteoarthritis, both conservatively and surgically. I'm probably feel better about starting a range of motion and therapy sooner than waiting later. But at the same time, just kind of like the uh, rotator cuff repair studies, I know I'm not going to do any harm if I wait later. Obviously, I'm, I'm a physical therapist. I want to get my hands on the patient and I would just soon treat them a little bit sooner than later. But this CPG told me that if I start them early, it's probably going to be okay. But if I have to wait a little bit later because of recommendations of their surgeon, it's probably not going to hurt their outcome overall. So that's nice to know. I'll also continue to be careful of the early uh, ER limitations that you guys found as well, simply because because of the, to protect the subscapularis. And last but not least, I'll certainly recommend if I have patients or know of people that I'm seeing that have osteoarthritis or are going to have a, a total shoulder arthroplasty, uh, certainly recommend, which I always have too, but now more emphatically that they attend some type of rehabilitation and PT. So really it kind of solidified a lot of what I thought I knew and just it gives me more assurance that what I'm doing is okay and it's the way that it, it should be handled with these type of patients. So thank you for doing this review. And Tim, I know you said you work with a largely geriatric population right now. What what piece of this guideline really resonated with you? Yeah, Janine, I think uh, we had a lot of great discussion today, and I think it, it allows me to increase my self-reflection on how do we improve our value as physical therapists for our patients in both um, conservative treatment and uh, post-surgical treatment, especially when we try to compare ourselves to maybe a generalized plan from a surgeon or expanding into that telehealth or remote monitoring realm. I think after reading the CPG, I become more confident in my ability to educate my patients of their expectations and communication to both my colleagues, students, and patients to increase their expectations about prognosis and recovery. And then going back to some specific discussions we had with outcome measures, maybe incorporating increased outcome measures of the, the functional testing that Lori recommended, and even in the CPG mentioning the ACES and WOOS outcome measures, uh, the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Standardized Shoulder Assessment Form and the Western Ontario Osteoarthritis Shoulder Outcome Measure that may be more responsive than what my company currently uses, which is the Quick Dash. So maybe using those measures to help assist the recovery for patients undergoing 
TSA or total shoulder arthroplasty procedures. So again, thank you very much for the discussion, inviting me and doing the clinical practice guidelines to elevate our profession. And Doug, as a member of APTA Hand and Upper Extremity, what part of this guideline really stood out to you? And what, if anything, will you do differently with your patients from now on? Yes, I would agree with Rob. And I think this was a very impressive document. Congratulations to Lori, Jill, and all the authors. This is really such a wonderful document for those of us that treat our clinicians sorely need this information, and we're very grateful. So thank you. I don't know. It all resonated with me. I think probably the the section that I kind of felt really had a lot of depth was the section on diagnosis. I think the emphasis by the authors on differential exam or differential exclusion of these different pathologies that we know can coexist at the shoulder that maybe even contribute to OA at the shoulder. I think that is so very important here and uh, listed in detail. Also, the comprehensive paragraph listing all those factors that are known to uh, be contributing to this problem. We know and we understand that these risk factors are contributors, and when we start to identify those with our patient, it's really a roadmap to effective treatment when we can, when we can get to these factors and if we can affect a change. I guess finally, as Lori pointed out early on, it was key predictors of critical shoulder angle and age, you know, our first couple of steps in developing a very important tool for our uh, clinicians, especially our early clinicians with less, less experience in the way of a clinical prediction rule. Our colleagues in the UK that was cited in this document have listed pain for three months at minimum, maybe global loss of motion, maybe more external rotation. Those types of uh, identifiers, I think, would go nicely uh, at some point in identifying a clinical prediction rule for OA. So thank you to the authors. I really enjoyed reviewing this. It'll certainly be a reference for me in the clinic. Congratulations. Thank you, everybody. Um, Before we finish up, I just want to jump in here to talk a little bit about clinical practice guidelines. APTA will be publishing a CPG on telerehab early next year, so keep an eye out for that. And if you're looking to get more involved with clinical practice guidelines at any stage in the process, it could be planning, development, knowledge translation, which is helping others implement the findings, please read out to your section or your academy, or you can email practice at apta.org to learn more. The whole profession, and and most importantly, your patients will really benefit from this evidence-based information. So thank you so much to Lori and Jill and Tim and Doug and Rob. We really appreciate all of you sharing your time and your expertise with us. You can find more APTA podcasts like this one on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. 